Before I pray, I just want to focus our, ver- focus our thoughts tonight on two verses. They're on page 6 in your service sheet if you don't have your Bible. Psalm chapter 51. Our subject tonight is brokenness. Verse 16, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, tonight we've shared a meal and we're satisfied physically, but we're still hungry. We're hungry to hear from you, to hear from your word, for you to speak to us tonight by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that I might be cleansed and be a broken vessel fit to communicate your word tonight to these friends who have gathered here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lance Armstrong was my hero. Having been an avid cyclist for a number of years, I was very interested to follow his exploits in the Tour de France. My cycling buddies and I on our Saturday big rides would, as uh, mature 50-something men will do, would take on the personas of our favorite cyclist, our favorite European racers. I was Bobby Jenkins, named after Bobby Julek, one of my favorite American riders. We all had our names, very mature guys, I know, riding around in our spandex shorts. <laughs> but nobody dared to take on the persona of Lance. He was the Holy Grail. The... Uh, Tour de France, I think, is unarguably the single most difficult, demanding sporting event there is on the face of the earth. To win it one time is a feat. To win it seven times in a row after battling cancer and defeating cancer, well, that's just Superman. And Lance was Superman. Now, he had always been accused of cheating, He denied it vehemently, and I believed him. I always chalked it up basically to French sour grapes. They have a lot of grapes over there. No doubt some of them are sour. Think of it this way. If France formed a football team, joined the NFL, and won the Super Bowl seven times in a row, how would that go over with you? Not very well, right? So I never believed that Lance cheated. But there he was with Oprah just a few short weeks ago, admitting to the world that in all seven of those tour victories, he had cheated. He looked sorry, I think. He seemed broken, I think. He seemed contrite. I think, but you had to wonder, and many people wondered as they watched this interview, is he really sorry, or is he just sorry he got caught? 
We ask that question a lot, don't we? We have, unfortunately, this parade of sports stars, celebrities, politicians, sometimes, to be fair, even clergy, doing this walk of shame, coming before the media to explain their behavior and to apologize for what they've done. And we ask ourselves, are they sorry? Are they just sorry they got caught? Well, with King David, there's no question. He was sorry. He was very sorry. You probably all know the story that's behind Psalm 51. And by the way, if you have your Bibles, or if you have a Bible handy to you, I'm going to ask you to, to open it to Psalm 51. It's a familiar story, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. I'm going to give you the Dick Jenkins version of it. If you want to read it for yourself later, it's found in the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. And it starts out by saying, in the spring when kings go off to war, David stayed home. His armies went out to war, but he stayed home. Apparently, he was at the height of his power. Things were going swimmingly in Israel. The nation was on autopilot. And I guess there was just no reason for him to, to, as most kings do, lead his armies to war. So he delegated to his commander, master general, Joab, to take care of it. And he stayed back in Jerusalem. Well, one night, he goes up on the roof of his palace in Jerusalem... Maybe he can't sleep. We don't know. And he looks out over the city, and he sees a woman. She's naked. She's bathing. And his heart burns with lust and desire. And he sends his servants to go and find her and bring her back to him. Now, there's a problem. She's a married woman. Her name is Bathsheba. And her husband is a man named Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah wasn't just any schlup in Jerusalem. He was in David's army. He was out fighting the battle. And not only was he in David's army, but Uriah the Hittite was li- is listed as one of David's mighty men. Mighty men. If you go to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 11... There's a listing of David's mighty men. These are the Bronze Star, Silver Star, Congressional Medal of Honor winners in the Israeli army. David's mighty men. And listed there with them all is Uriah the Hittite. So David has Bathsheba brought to the palace. He takes her to his bed. Fast forward a month or two. She informs David... I'm pregnant. And so the downward spiral of sin begins. He starts with the cover-up. That's what we all do, don't we? Let's cover it up. And so he calls Uriah, her husband, back from the battlefield. It's just a good old boy meeting. Uriah, tell me how it's going out there. How is the war progressing? 
And then after the meeting, he says, Uriah, good buddy, thanks for coming. I really appreciate your time. How about before you go back to the battlefield, go home to your wife and enjoy yourself. And I don't think I have to explain the strategy there. But Uriah says, no. I would never consider doing such a thing because my band of brothers is out there on the battlefield, sleeping on the ground. I would never consider enjoying myself at home with my wife. And he spent the night sleeping on the floor of the palace with the servants. Plan B. The next morning, David says, you know, Uriah, before you go back, why don't you stay another day? I think I'd like to have a dinner in your honor. And so David throws this dinner, and he breaks out the best wine. And to put it bluntly, he gets Uriah drunk. And then at the end of a a fun evening, he says, Uriah, good friend, go home. Spend the night with your wife before you head back to the front. But even plied with alcohol, loyal, faithful Uriah says, no, not when my band of brothers is out there in the field. I'll stay here in the palace and sleep on the floor. Plan C. The next morning, as Uriah is packing and heading back to the front, David comes down to him, hands him a sealed envelope and says, Uriah, when you get back to the battlefield, would you give that note to Joab? As you wish. And Uriah heads back to the battlefield, totally unaware that in his hands he's carrying the orders for his execution. Plan C works. Uriah is dead. David brings Bathsheba into the palace, makes her his wife. What a guy. But that's not the end of it. David gets a visit from his pastor. Pastor Nathan drops by. And they're talking, and he says, David, I I want to get your advice on something. He says, in my congregation, there's a man who's very rich. He has a big house. He has a lot of land. He has a lot of livestock. He has everything he needs. Next door to him is a man who's poor, who has just a small, barely essential house, He does have a loving family and kids. He has no livestock to speak of. The only thing he has is a little lamb. And that little lamb is like the family pet. He lets the lamb drink out of his cup, the same cup he drinks out of. And to the kids, it's their favorite thing. But one day, the rich man gets guests from out of town. And he wants to make a big impression on these people. And so he decides that for the first evening's menu, they're going to have roast lamb. And he doesn't take a lamb out of his flock, out of his livestock. Instead, he goes next door and he takes that lamb, pulls it out of the hands of the crying children, slaughters it, and feeds it to his company. And David is listening to this. And as he listens, the blood is coming to his head. And the anger through his clenched teeth, he says to Nathan, he says, Who? Who is it? What's his name? And Nathan looks at David and he says, You. You are the man. And with those four words, 
David is broken. And so what we have in Psalm 51 is David in his brokenness setting things right with God. Brokenness is the first step in setting things right with God. I hope you have uh, Psalm 51 open with your Bibles, if you can. What I want to do now is go back to verse 1. And I want us, in the, in the time that we have left, I want us to see three things here about brokenness, illustrated in this prayer of David. The first thing I want us to see is that brokenness drives us to acknowledge our guilt and cry out to God. Listen to what David says in verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David here is feeling an intense sense of guilt. And when we feel guilty, we feel condemned. We feel dirty. We feel unclean. And so he cries out to God. You know, guilt sometimes gets a bad rap. And sometimes, rightly so, guilt can be unhealthy. It can make, sometimes make people neurotic. There is unhealthy guilt. But guilt can also be very healthy. It can be like pain. When we feel pain in our body, it tells us that something's wrong. It tells us that there's something that needs attention. And if the pain becomes severe enough, it drives us to the doctor where our life can be saved. Guilt can be the same way. And David, in his intense guilt, cries out to God in these two verses. Now, two things I want you to notice in those two verses. First of all, David could cry out to God because he knew God. He knows two things about God that he mentions there. Did you hear them? First of all, he knows that God is compassionate. That God is compassionate. Isn't it good to know that when we sin, when we're feeling guilt, that we can cry out to a God who's compassionate? And he also knows that God's love is unfailing. His unfailing love. You know, as human beings, as as sinners, we can forgive those we love. But sometimes our love can't take us all the way. If the hurt is too deep or the betrayal is, is, is too heinous, sometimes we just can't get there. Our love fails. But God's love never fails. And David knew that. David also knew what God could do. Notice there, he asked God to blot out, to wash away to cleanse. You see, when we're, when we're broken and we understand our guilt, we want to be clean. We want to be cleansed, and God can clean us. He can cleanse us. That's what forgiveness is. It's an act of divine grace whereby our sin is blotted out like a divine whiteout, and we're cleansed as our sins are washed down the drain. Remember Lady Macbeth, 
in the, the Shakespeare play. Walking at night, burdened with guilt, wringing her hands, saying, Out, damn spot. Out, I say. And then holding her hands to the, her nose and saying, Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia cannot sweeten these hands. Guilt. But David prays for God to do what Lady Macbeth had no hope of doing. He prays. Later on, he says in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Later on, those words reflected by the prophet Isaiah when he says, he says, speaking for God to the people, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. Or as the old gospel hymn puts it, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Search me and try me, Master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now as in thy presence, humbly I bow. Brokenness drives us to acknowledge our guilt and cry out to God. The second thing I want us to see is that brokenness drives us to face the truth about ourselves. When I was young, I, I was born and, and spent my um, <clears throat> up through junior high in Newcastle. How many here from Newcastle or have lived in Newcastle or even know where it is? Y'all know where it is, please. We're not that far south. And during the summer, this was a time. This was in a time when kids actually entertained themselves, didn't have to be hauled anywhere, and didn't cost their parents any money. And I like to visit my cousin. We all li- we both lived in Newcastle. He on the other side of town, and he lived in, I guess, what would be considered a kind of a rough neighborhood. And in this neighborhood, just a few blocks away from his house, was this mom-and-pop grocery store. And one day, mom-and-pop got held up. They got robbed at gunpoint, and the robber got away. Now, for a couple of 10-year-old boys, that was really cool. And so we decided, we're going to go down there, and we're going to be detectives. We're going to be investigators. This is what they called back in the day using your imagination. We were going to be investigators. And we went down to mom and pop's grocery store. And we went up and down the aisles looking at the shelves, looking for clues. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I can tell. You're thinking, that's CSI Newcastle. We were ahead of our time. Well, when we sin, our heart becomes a crime scene. And David looks at the crime scene of his heart, and he makes some observations. Follow along if you can, beginning with verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, 
so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. David looks at the crime scene of his heart. And it's a mess. It's a bloody mess. And he knows it. I want us just, in those verses, I want to focus. There's two words, two synonyms that David uses for sin. I just want to focus on those two words. The first one is transgression. He says, verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. He says, I know my transgressions. I know. He doesn't say, if I've transgressed, or I, I, I might have transgressed, or Kind of, maybe. Not like one of those non-apology apologies. You know what I mean? Yeah, if I hurt you, I'm really sorry. If. David says, I know. I know what I did. I know my transgression. It's before me. And then he goes on and he says that he has sinned against God. He says, verse 4, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, God, you only. Wait a minute. Hit the pause button. Are you thinking this? What about Uriah? Hey, David, there's a body in the room. Aren't you missing the biggest thing? Only against God you've sinned? What about Uriah? You took his lamb, his little lamb, and then you killed him. He is the one you sinned against. God's a big boy. God can handle it. What about Uriah? Where does he come into this? I had to think about that. And I'll share with you what I came up with. I didn't read this in a commentary. You can take it for what... Or leave it. But here's, what, here's the conclusion I came to. This psalm, which is a prayer, is not a prayer for pagans. This is a prayer for the redeemed. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Someone who's not been redeemed, who does not know God's love and God's grace, doesn't get it, can't get it, won't get it. But see, if you're one for whom God has reached down and in love he has redeemed you and he has rescued you and he has pulled you out of the pit of your sin and he has cleaned you off and he has put on you white robes of righteousness and he has written your name on your forehead and on your heart that says, mine When you sin against God, you take all of that and you throw it in the trash. You treat it with contempt. You treat God with contempt. And this hits David. And it's like, 
against you and you only have I sinned. Yes, Uriah was a casualty, collateral damage. Our sin always has collateral damage. But when you understand what it means for someone who's been redeemed, who belongs to God, to sin in such a way that you treat that one who loved you so much with contempt, then you get it. And you know what? For us today, it applied to David. But for us today, it applies times 10, times 100. Because we know of God's grace even more than he did. The second word, iniquity. Iniquity. CSI David here uncovers another fact about sin. It's ugly. It's just plum ugly. Think of that word iniquity. It's kind of just an ugly word, isn't it? In fact, try to say the word iniquity without scrunching up your nose like you just smelled something really bad. Iniquity. Go ahead, say it. Iniquity. 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 It's like saying stink bug. Sin is ugly. But we never tire of trying to dress it up, do we? Don't we? Do we? You know, the truth is we're moral con artists. We're, we're grifters, and our, our mark is the heart. We, we, we like things like that little plaque and I apologize if you have one in your house. But we like things like that little plaque that shows the little boy with the black eye and the ripped jeans, and he's all dirty, and you can just tell he's been up to no good. And the little thing on the plaque says, God isn't finished with me yet. Yeah, that, that's, that's what it's all about. God isn't finished with me yet. No, no. You know, we... We, we, we like to think that it's as if we're just mischievous little urchins, good old boys that get ourselves occasionally in a, in a bit of mischief. As if when we sin, it's really an aberration. It's an astonishing departure, but it's not the norm. Because we're pretty good. A few years back, a lot of years back, I guess, on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, one of the classic moments that you see replayed from time to time, Hugh Grant got arrested in Los Angeles. He solicited a prostitute. And while they were in an alley of all places, the police came and arrested him. Now Hugh Grant's coming on The Tonight Show. And he comes on looking a little sheepish. And the first thing Jay says to him as he looks at him, do you remember this? He says, what were you thinking? And the tension broke and the audience just howled. What were you thinking? As if what he did was a shock. It's not a shock. It's not a shock. The only thing amazing about our sin is that when we've sinned, the damage is not greater than it was. And David acknowledges that sin is in his nature. He doesn't try to tell God, I'm a good person who just messed up. But he says in those verses, I 
have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the, the time my mother conceived me. I was born this way, as Lady Gaga might say. But there's a big difference. For David, it's not an excuse for bad behavior. And he goes on to say, in fact, God, you are right. You are right and you are just when you judge. So brokenness makes us all CSIs of the heart, looking upon the crime scene of our sin, facing, frankly, what is often the awful truth about ourselves. The third thing I want us to see here about brokenness is that brokenness drives us to the cross. See, God, or David not only asked God to cleanse him, he asked for something even more. He says, God, fix me. Listen to his words. This is verses 10 through 12. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, David lived on the other side of the cross. He was a good thousand years before Christ walked the earth. But he knew enough to know that God could not only cleanse him, but God could do something new. God could create something. And so he cries out to God, God, fix me, fix me. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature or a new creation. That's what David, a thousand years before, is asking for. God, create in me a clean heart. Fix me. Fix me. Is that your prayer tonight? As the old Gaither hymn says, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. God, fix me. And then he says, do not cast me from your presence. Now, does that seem like an odd thing for him to say? Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Well, think about it. Who was David's predecessor? Who was David's predecessor? Okay, I just want to make sure you're awake. Saul. What happened to Saul? God forsook him. God cast him off. God took his spirit from Saul. And David is saying, Oh God, I'm not Saul. I'm not Saul. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. But when you think about it, Saul, Saul was a polar opposite from David. When Saul's pastor, Pastor Samuel, came to him, he didn't listen. He didn't take responsibility. He didn't cry out to God. He didn't even feel guilt. He refused to acknowledge his guilt. He refused to examine the crime scene of his heart. Instead of seeking God and asking God to fix him, he fell so low that he ended up going to a witch, asking her to bring back Samuel from the dead. Totally forsaken and cast off 
by God. David says, Oh God, I'm not Saul. Please don't cast me out from your presence. And then he says, Restore me. Restore me. In one month, that's going to be our Lenten meditation. And I get to preach it. Yippee. But that's where we're headed. That's brokenness is the first step. And that's where we're headed. Back into a right relationship with God. Back to healing. Back to joy. But it all starts with brokenness. Which drives us to seek God as we acknowledge our guilt. Which drives us to examine the Christ the crime scene of our hearts and come face to face with who we really are. And then it leads us to the cross. I'm going to close with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, a great Catholic, a great uh, classic of the Christian faith. Some of you have read it or maybe at least read parts of it. Uh, in it, John Bunyan, if you don't know, it's around 1620, somewhere in there. He's in jail for preaching Christ. And while in jail, he writes this classic piece of, piece of Christian literature, probably other than the Bible, the greatest one there is. And it's, it's an allegory, as in what he calls the similitude of a dream. He follows the journey of this man named Christian as he leaves his house and heads on this journey to the celestial city. And as Christian starts out this journey, he has this heavy burden on his back. And here's how Bunyan describes it. He says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do so, till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome, and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow, and life by his death. Then he stood a while, to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him, that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. As we prepare for Holy Week coming next month, as we prepare for the Lord's table tonight, let's look with wonder at the cross where the blood of Jesus washed away our sins and the burden of sin on our back rolled away. Amen? Would you pray again with me, please? Lord, we thank you that so many 
thousand years ago. You brought King David to this place of brokenness. And out of that, you brought this beautiful psalm, this prayer, that teaches us yet today what it means to be broken. Help us, Lord, to recognize again you do not delight in sacrifices. If you did, we would bring them. You do not desire sacrifices, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Might our hearts be broken and contrite before you tonight. In Christ's name we pray.